Other than that, uh, welcome this morning. Uh, it's nice to see you all back. Uh, yesterday was uh, certainly for me a, a stimulating and exciting uh, experience. Uh, I think that uh, all of us who were here uh, really benefited from the, uh, from the participation of the outstanding panelists and, of course, Dr. Soul's remarks uh, and the Vice President and the Attorney General. Uh, we are uh, uh, going to have uh, an equally uh, uh, vigorous and, uh, and I say stimulating uh, discussion uh, today with the several panels that are scheduled. Um, and so uh, without taking up anybody's time uh, any further, let me turn the podium over to uh, the uh, Deputy Attorney General of the United States, Arnold Burns. Arnie is a uh, man who I have come to know very, very well, and uh, he's become a very close friend in a short period of time. Somebody who came into Washington from New York and did the impossible in an impossible uh, space of time. He uh, became totally acclimated to government and uh, the curious ways in which uh, government works or doesn't work and adjusted uh, on the job in rapid fire fashion as the associate attorney general and was so uh, so good at that uh, he was immediately uh, elevated to deputy attorney general and he hasn't missed a beat since he's been on board and it's been a real pleasure for me and all of us in the department of justice to have had the experience to uh, to work with get to know and to uh, to really have a uh, a very meaningful and and uh, superb experience with Arnie. He's, he is a, uh, a lawyer of considerable dimension and somebody who cares about uh, the issues that are important to an awful lot of us and other people, uh, uh, the issues that we've been hearing about yesterday and we'll be hearing about today. With that, uh, Arnie, it's uh, yours and I turn the podium over to you. Thank you, Brad. Good morning. Good morning, fellow Federalists. One of the advantages of moderating a panel as distinguished as this one is that I need not spend a whole lot of time on introductions. Judge Robert Bork of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit former Solicitor General of the United States, and Alexander Bickel, Professor of Public Law at Yale Law School, is, as we all know, one of the foremost legal thinkers and practitioners in our area. Similarly, all of you who follow constitutional theory are familiar with the powerful and innovative thought of Bruce Ackerman the Beekman Professor of Law and Philosophy at Columbia University Law School, author of Private Property and the Constitution, and author of Reconstructing American Law. Professor Ackerman Storr's lectures a few years ago already have begun to influence constitutional debate profoundly.
This convention is also lucky to be one of the first to hear from the new dean of the University of Chicago Law School, Jeffrey Stone. Among dean-designate Stone's most recent works is a new constitutional law casebook. Finally, Michael Horowitz, who recently returned to private practice, spent four years as counsel to the director and general counsel of the Office of Management and Budget. Mike Horowitz quickly established a reputation not only as one of the best lawyers in the administration, but as one of its most profound thinkers on legal and political issues generally. Having introduced the speakers, I am permitted a few moments to introduce the topic, precedent, the amendment process, and evolution in constitutional doctrine. Thus, we are talking about the overall topic of this convention, change in the law in the specific context of the Constitution. While my practice, and more recently my service in the Justice Department, have inevitably brought me into contact with constitutional law, I do not pretend to be a specialist in either the law of the Constitution or the field of political philosophy that is associated with it. I can, however, look at our topic from the point of view of a legal practitioner who sometimes has to deal with the Constitution and from the point of view of a citizen who happily lives under it. As a lawyer representing clients, I know that the Constitution changes, and I know how it changes through the case law of the Supreme Court. Of course, when I'm speaking of the Constitution here, I don't mean the document that appears somewhere in most constitutional law casebooks, and I'm sure somewhere prominently in Dean Stone's casebook. Rather, I am referring to, I mean, my lawyer's expectations of how cases under that document will be decided. Every good lawyer is to that extent a legal realist. If he isn't, his clients are in real trouble. Of course, those expectations are based on something. And when I am trying to predict the direction that change in doctrine is likely to take, if my client has a case that is on the cutting edge, I have to know something about what changes are likely and what changes are not likely. Since judges, in fact, act as if they feel constrained by both constitutional text and their own precedents. As a lawyer, I need a working understanding of how those constraints operate. Frankly, most good practitioners base their understanding on some rules of thumb and on a feel for how courts operate. 
a sense that is based on experience, but not readily or easily expressed in words. So if someone could come up with a way of thinking about precedent and text and change that would persuade judges, my clients and I would very much like to know about it. I expect that our discussion of precedent and evolution will involve both description of what the courts do and suggestions of what the nature of the Constitution and the rule of law requires them to do. It is, of course, fitting in this bicentennial year that we should celebrate our Constitution, holder of the world's record for, for providing a Republican form of government for the most consecutive years under a written instrument. It is a time for reflection and for consideration of and return to fundamentals of constitutional law and fundamentals of constitutional law. I hope that today we will touch on a number of fundamental questions. I have four questions, a couple long, a couple short. Question one, a long one. As ours is a government based on popular sovereignty, why is the will of the people, as expressed by the words of the Constitution in 1787, any more sacrosanct than the will of the people as represented in the Congress in 1987? Or if we want to leave the representatives out of it, why should the people's consensus of 1787 prevail against that of 1987, however we determine that consensus? Stated somewhat differently, as all of those who participated in the framing and ratification of the Constitution are long since dead and buried. Why is it that we of the present generation should give a hoot about what they wrote down on parchment with their quills 200 years ago? Question two, a short one. If the text of the Constitution is truly to be our guide, how should judges construe it and reason from it in resolving issues which could not conceivably have been contemplated by our founding fathers. Question three. How are judges to be constrained? Can judges be motivated to uphold the integrity of earlier constitutional solutions? And lastly, question four. As Article five of the Constitution contains machinery for formally amending its wording. What are the limits beyond which judges should not go in changing the meaning and character of our citizenship by judicially mending, emending, or upending the wording of the Constitution where the need for change is perceived because of the judge's view of changing social conditions, cultural or moral values, or political philosophy. Well, 
that hints at the general questions I expect our panelists will talk about and discuss among themselves and with you. I think I've built the suspense, haven't I? But since I have only been guessing, it's time we all found out. It is my distinct privilege and joy to introduce first Professor Ackerman. Professor Ackerman. It's a, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I knew I was doing the right thing uh, when I got this great tie. Uh, uh, flaming red, uh, which uh, it seems to me to be an appropriate uh, uh, symbol for the Federalists and James Madison. After all, the Federalists, as we all know, uh, fought and won the first colonial revolution in, the, in modern history. Their constitution um, was an illegal act. Uh, uh, they brought, uh, they held top secret meetings. No one was allowed to uh, um, to uh, listen to what they said because they knew that if people heard it wouldn't get through uh, but they knew that because they, they since they co-opted George Washington uh, they thought that uh, uh, no one would mind much when they said we the people and then proceeded to propose a completely illegal procedure for the ratification of this document um, and then, of course, having won that, proceeded to um, uh, uh, embark the country on a great experiment um, whose epitome, so far as the first Washington administration was concerned, uh, was the first bank of the United States, which we all recognize uh, was a very creative experiment in a state uh, mixed economy, you know, I mean, the Bank of the United States, we all know, had some private owners, some public owners, very interesting idea. So, um, but we're not, I'm not going to be talking about uh, understanding the intention of these revolutionary uh, federalists, founders of the mixed economy, but rather the um, question how does the task of interpreting the Constitution in 1987 differ from Marshall's understanding uh, in Marbury against Madison? Uh, by framing the question this way, I mean to uh, a sidestep uh, uh, questions which all of us have uh, worried about and thought about a great deal. That is, how to interpret any complicated instrument. And certainly the Constitution of the United States is complicated enough, right? And, um, um, and, and try to get, to subset, segment out the question, um, is there anything specially difficult about interpreting the instrument that Marbury and Marshall didn't, couldn't think about? And the answer to that question is yes. And uh, there are two things, and only two, uh, at least for present purposes, that I want to emphasize. Um, the first one 
has to do with amendments, right? Marshall, when he was looking uh, backward, um, was a member of the very generation, uh, this generation long since dead, uh, that um, uh, wrote the text, and it was fair for him to think that he understood the premises of the, of the writers of the, cons the original Constitution and the amendments, uh, that, they, that the convention, after all, asserted um, responsibility for saying everything that had to be said, right? It was sort of complete, coherent, or at least it was plausible to think of it that way. All right. Um, so this, let's call it, let's call this the problem of interpreting a, a, a text conceived at one moment, right? The way that uh, Shakespeare conceived a play, right? Or that Sherman conceived the Sherman Act. <laughs> that was a test. The, um, this premise of holistic synthesis, right, of co this coherence, was uh, destroyed forever uh, uh, at Fort Sumter. Uh, if we asked the framers, you see, what did they think about blacks, you didn't want to, you don't want to really ask them, right? But certainly, whatever they thought about blacks, or the general concept of equality, right, has no relevance to us today, not because the framers' intentions don't matter, but because that dimension of the framers' intentions has been repudiated. In the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. If you ask the framers, what do they think about nationalism? Well, they were, as I suggested, extremely nationalistic people for their time. The Articles of Confederation were very clear. You could only amend the Constitution by getting the unanimous consent of all 13 state legislatures. Now, that state's rights for you. The framers said, forget it, and said nine ratifications were enough. That's nationalism. But um, they were nothing, nowhere near as nationalistic as the, as the framers of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Nowhere near. Um, I could, uh, well, we could read <laughs> uh, the uh, intentions uh, of uh, the framers in general of the, third, of the, of the Civil War generation. Um, you shouldn't be fooled, as obviously you are when you call yourselves Federalists. Um, you shouldn't be fooled by calling yourselves Republicans either. Thaddeus Stevens, you see, uh, is a Republican. <laughs> Uh, he's the Republican, uh, or Bingham, he's the Republican we have to articulate. You can't assume that I'm a Federalist Republican, my friends, uh, uh, and uh, you just can't assume anachronistically that uh, the Federalist and Republican 
affirmations of nationhood and the Republican, but not the Federalist affirmation of equality uh, uh, are to be confused. But the, with the positions of the Federalist Society or the Republican Party of 1987. Um, the fundamental problem in constitutional interpretation, however, is the problem of synthesis. That is to say, from 1869, or, we have two, we have a text written by two different generations. And somehow, we have to put these two very different conceptual apparatuses together into a whole. That's the problem of synthesis. And of course, it can be solved very easily in one of two ways. Um, the um, um, trivializing ways, ways which have familiar advocates, but also I think it's clear to all of us that the main line of constitutional interpretation rightly rejects these ways. One way of solving the problem of synthesis is by trivializing the second moment the moment of the Civil War uh, uh, generation, and look upon the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as a super statute. Right? That is to say, the original synthesis comes shining through, and there are little few pinpricks that were changed, you know, a few little rules. This is Raoul Berger, for example's uh, approach and it, uh, to the problem of synthesis. On the other hand, one could solve the problem of synthesis not by trivializing the second moment, um, uh, but by trivializing the first. And um, look upon the 39th and 40th Congress as if it sort of rewrote the whole thing, right? And it solved the problem of synthesizing that which is valuable and that which is to be rejected of the first generation. Um, this is, the, this is the approach, for example, of Hugo Black. Uh, uh, Hugo Black's approach to in incorporation is to say, aha, the problem of incorporation is a perfect example of the problem of synthesis. That is, to what extent do the Bill of Rights that were originally intended to constrain the national government, how should we reinterpret that now that the <coughs> Civil War generation has elaborated a more nationalistic understanding of American citizenship and nationality? Uh, so this is a perfectly standard and fundamental problem of synthesis, which of course I'm not going to answer for you right now, but to note that Black answers it by trivializing the first generation and saying, aha, a couple of guys in the 39th and 40th Congresses thought about that and they gave you a rule, which is incorporation. Right? So that solves the synthesis problem by saying it's the second moment that counts and not the first. Um, the truth is that the second generation did something bigger than a bread box and smaller than an elephant, right? It did something that transformed. It can't be reduced to a couple of little rules. No one believes that. Um, the, uh, it, 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 the, so what the second generation did was to add some fundamental principles which requires us to rethink every single other dimension, 
but also at the same time think of the second generation's contribution in the light of the first. This is the synthetic act which is inevitable for us. We can't solve this by asking the intention of the framers. What would James Madison, great man that he is, have thought about the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments? Answer, my God, I've worked so hard so as to avoid the Civil War, and I've failed. <laughs> right. What would Thaddeus Stevens or Bingham um, have thought about the problem of synthesizing their principles with those of the founders? Answer, they had a few wacko ideas, but that was not what the people of the United States <laughs> ratified. What the people of the United States ratified is a few fundamental changes, but no one at that time, in, though in that context, tried to put the puzzle together. Um, this is a problem of interpretation, not just making it up. It's a problem that actually that is very similar to the classic problem of interpretation for the West, biblical hermeneutics. That is to say, in the Bible, we have different things written by different people, right? And what we're supposed to do is construct a coherent interpretation of all these different writers recognizing that they're different, right? And that the secret of the, the meaning of the Bible is not in one book, right? But rather in the relationships and the construction out of these different books into as best a whole as we can make it. That's precisely our relationship to the uh, Constitution. When, as we must, we must recognize that our Constitution is written by more than one generation of Americans. John Marshall did not have to recognize that. That's the first problem. The second problem I'll have to come back for. <laughs> Thank you so very much. And I'd like now to call on Dean Designate Stone. Dean Stone. When I arrived here yesterday afternoon, after the speech by Vice President Bush, this room was full. There were no empty seats. In that context, I got into a minor property rights dispute with a member of the audience over the right to occupy a particular chair. During the course of that dispute, my opponent, who had no reason, so far as I could tell, to know anything about me, roared at me in his most enraged tone of voice, what are you anyway, some kind of ACLU type? <laughs> this incident fascinated me for two reasons. First, in this fellow's mind, this was the most vile invective that he could hurl at me. <laughs> and second, and I'm not sure exactly what to make of this in the context of the story, I am, of course, an ACLU type. 
We at the University of Chicago have a special feeling for the Federalist Society. For as you know, through the work of Lee Lieberman and David McIntosh, when they were students at the law school, the society has its roots in the University of Chicago. And we take special pride in the fact that some of our most esteemed faculty members, such as Nino Scalia, Frank Easterbrook, Richard Epstein, Richard Posner, Mike McConnell, and others, have played an important role in the development and in the success of this society. I should caution you, however, that not all of us at Chicago are Federalists. Indeed, imitation being the sincerest form of flattery, I'm happy to report that some non-Federalists at Chicago last year formed the Progressive Law Student Association, an organization that is already thriving at Chicago and will no doubt make its appearance at campuses throughout the nation. Uh, I do indeed love the marketplace of ideas. Last week, a formal policy report within the Department of Justice recommended that the department should urge the Supreme Court of the United States to overrule its landmark 1966 decision in Miranda versus Arizona. This saddened me, not only because I believe Miranda to be one of the great achievements of the court's constitutional jurisprudence, but also because the report had the temerity to cite me, essentially out of context, as authority for one of the central propositions supporting its conclusion. Be that as it may, the general tenor of the report called to mind Gulliver's analysis of the doctrine of precedent. It is a maxim among lawyers, said Gulliver, that whatever has been done before may be legally done again. And therefore, they take special care to record all the decisions formally made against common justice and the general reason of mankind. <laughs> These, under the name of precedent, they produce as authorities to justify the most iniquitous opinions and the judges never fail of directing accordingly. In what circumstances, if any, is it appropriate for a justice of the Supreme Court to vote to overrule a major constitutional precedent? This is a timely and indeed always important question. It is also, in the grand scheme of things, a question whose answer does not necessarily correspond to any particular political ideology. In some circumstances, liberals may see themselves as benefiting from a more aggressive tendency to overrule. In other circumstances, conservatives may see themselves as the beneficiaries. I would like to try to examine this question without regard to whether the precedent at issue is Miranda versus Arizona or Bowers versus Hardwick. Let me begin with two extreme positions. First, the Supreme Court should never overrule a prior decision. Now, to support this view, one might argue that prior justices should be treated in essentially the same way as we treat the framers themselves. The justices of the Supreme Court may and indeed must interpret the prior decisions of the framers as they are expressed in the constitutional text. But they may not explicitly overrule those judgments. If the judgments of the framers are to be explicitly overruled, it must be through the process of constitutional amendment. Well, one might argue that the decisions of prior justices should be analogized to the judgments of the framers. Subsequent justices may and must interpret such decisions, but they may not explicitly overrule them. If such decisions are wrong or outdated or bad policy, they too should be dealt with through the processes of constitutional amendment. Now, at the time the Constitution was adopted, there was, of course, considerable disagreement over the amendment process. Thomas Jefferson believed that the Constitution should be rewritten every generation on the theory that without frequent Constitution-making, there would be too little participation in the affairs of government. 
As Jefferson put it, some men look at constitutions with sanctimonious reverence and deem them too sacred to be touched. They ascribe to the men of the preceding age a wisdom more than human. Let us not weakly believe that one generation is not as capable as another of taking care of itself. James Madison rejected this view. Madison believed that Jefferson's vision would produce instability and that it would generate violent struggle. Had Jefferson's, views, had Jefferson's view prevailed, a policy of unalterable precedent would have been quite plausible, for the interpretive decisions of the justices would then routinely be open to reversal through the amendment process. In fact, however, the Madisonian view has prevailed. The processes of constitutional amendment are quite cumbersome. As a consequence, in the 200-year history of the Constitution, only four times has the nation adopted a constitutional amendment to overrule the Supreme Court decision. The 11th Amendment overruled Chisholm, the 14th Dred Scott, the 16th Pollock, and the 26th arguably overruled Oregon and Mitchell. In such circumstances, the position that prior judicial decisions may not be overruled would produce a highly rigidified and inflexible jurisprudence there would be little or no opportunity to correct mistakes or to re-examine prior decisions in the light of changing circumstances in an evolving society. Now, it's important to note that these very same concerns also arise with respect to the judgments of the framers. Because we so rarely amend the Constitution, the judgments of the framers entrap and rigidify our constitutional structure. Jefferson warned, as we saw, that we have to guard against the Constitution being regarded as too sacred to be touched. But it's possible that we have fallen victim to exactly that concern. There are at least two factors, however, that may make this state of affairs acceptable with respect to the judgments of the framers, even though it would not be acceptable with respect to the decisions of prior justices. First, the judgments of the framers are for the most part expressed in grand generalities. They bind, but only in the most general sense. We can and have developed a lively and dynamic constitutional jurisprudence within the very broad confines of the framers' design. A system of unalterable judicial precedent, on the other hand, with an ever-growing body of decisions, would gradually choke off all opportunity for growth and re-examination. Second, the framers' judgments were, of course, embodied in the text of the Constitution through the processes of constitution-making. The justices of the Supreme Court, as I've said, may and indeed must interpret those judgments, but no responsible theory of constitutional interpretation suggests that the justices are empowered explicitly to overrule those judgments. Prior justices, on the other hand, have no greater constitutional authority than subsequent justices. Their power to interpret the Constitution is not under any theory superior to the power of their successors. Thus, if, su if subsequent justices overrule the judgments of their predecessors, they are not rejecting judgments that have any greater constitutional status than their own. And this then brings me to the second extreme position. Every issue of constitutional law is a question of first impression. Under this view, prior decisions have persuasive authority only. This poses the question, why adopt a policy of precedent at all? Why should subsequent justices ever have to follow a decision that they believe to be wrong? Since their authority to interpret the Constitution is equal to that of their predecessors, why should they not be free to make their own independent judgments as to the most appropriate interpretation of the constitutional text? 
Well, several justifications are commonly offered for the doctrine of precedent. First, we, of course, do not have unlimited judicial resources. If every issue is a question of first impression, in every case, then our judicial system would simply be overwhelmed with endless litigation. Second, we need a degree of predictability in our affairs. Interests of fairness, efficiency, and the enhancement of social interaction require that governments and citizens have a reasonably settled sense of what they may and may not do. Third, the doctrine of precedent raises the stakes. The justice who knows that each decision governs not only the litigants to the particular case, but the rights of millions of individuals in the present and in the future, will approach the issue with less concern for the merits of the particular litigants as individuals and more concern for the merits of the underlying legal question to be resolved. Fourth, the doctrine of precedent reflects a generally cautious approach to the resolution of legal issues. It reflects the view that change poses unknown risks and that we generally should prefer the risks we know to those that we cannot foresee. It thus values Madisonian stability over Jeffersonian change. Fifth, the doctrine of precedent reduces the potential politicization of the court. It moderates ideological swings and thus preserves both the appearance and the reality of the court as a legal rather than a purely political institution. And finally, from the peculiar perspective of the justices themselves, the doctrine of precedent enhances the potential of the justices as individuals to make lasting contributions. If a justice disregards the judgments of those who preceded him, he invites the very same treatment from those who succeed him. A justice who wants to preserve the value of his own coin must not deflate the coin of his predecessors. Now, if we reject these two extreme positions, precedent always controls and precedent never controls, we are then left with the hard question. When may a justice appropriately overrule an important constitutional decision? What is needed, of course, is some accommodation between the values of stability and the necessity for change. Perhaps the best way to approach the question is by reference to the reasons for overruling. Three reasons seem to me worth considering. First, in some instances, a justice may conclude that a prior decision was based on certain factual premises that have proved incorrect, and that the justices who reached that prior decision would themselves have reached a different result had they only known then what the court knows now. This would be the case, for example, if the prior decision was based upon erroneous assumptions either about the state of the world or about the likely consequences of the decision. Honestly applied, this seems to me the least problematic basis for overruling. Second, in some instances, a justice may conclude that a prior decision was premised on a state of affairs that has so changed over time that the justices who reached the prior decision might themselves have reached a different result in light of the changed circumstances. This might be the case, for example, when there are significant technological, economic, social, political, institution, institutional, or jurisprudential changes. With such changes, our understanding of the meaning of particular constitutional provisions may evolve as well. On this view, a decision that was right in one set of circumstances may appropriately be overruled because it is wrong in a new and different era. Now, this is, of course, a more controversial basis for overruling than the first, for there are those who eschew the idea of an evolving constitutional jurisprudence and who would reject the relevance of changed circumstances. Nonetheless, in my view, this basis for overruling, honestly applied, seems to me perfectly reasonable. Finally, a justice may conclude that a prior decision was simply wrong at the time that it was decided. 
Had he been a justice at the time of the prior decision, he would have voted the office away. Now that he has found four other justices who share his view, he will overrule the wrong decision. This seems to me the most problematic basis for overruling. Without the justification of either inaccurate factual premises or changed circumstances, the justice in this situation is merely substituting his judgment for that of his predecessors. And although his predecessors may have no claim to greater interpretative authority than their successors, it is likewise true that the successors have no greater interpretive authority than the predecessors. Why then should the view of the successors prevail? Such a basis for overruling substitutes power for principle and generates instability, unpredictability, politicization, and all of the other dangers sought to be avoided by the doctrine of precedent. Now, having said this, I must concede that it's long been recognized, as Justice Frankfurter put it, that the ultimate touchstone of constitutionality is the Constitution itself, not what the justices have said about it. Accordingly, the court has consistently maintained that the doctrine of precedent has less force in the realm of constitutional interpretation than in other areas of the law. It is important, however, to understand the rationale underlying this approach. That rationale has been well stated by Edward Levy. A change of mind from time to time, Levy explained, is inevitable when there is a written constitution, for there can be no authoritative interpretation. The Constitution and its general provisions embodies the conflicting ideals of the community. Who is to say what these ideals mean in any definitive way? Certainly not the framers, for they did their work when the words were put down, and the words are ambiguous. This is no accident. Situations change, and people's wants change. There must be room for the infusion of new ideas. It is in this manner, Levy concluded, that constitutional interpretation comes to express the ideas of the community. This third basis for overruling, then, that the justices are free to go back to the Constitution itself, is at its core merely a restatement of the second. Except in the most extraordinary of circumstances, a prior interpretation can be said to be wrong, not in any definitive sense, but only in the sense that the process of constitutional interpretation is a process of evolution. It is a dynamic process through which constitutional law comes, in Levy's words, to express the ideas of the community. Those who reject this vision of the Constitution and who insist on an objective and definitive and static view of constitutional right or wrong ultimately must rely on power rather than principle to affect constitutional change. In introducing Professor Sowell yesterday, Brad Reynolds referred in passing to the legitimacy of overruling wrong decisions in order to reinstate the right result as defined by the theory of original intention. With all due respect, in making this decision, Brad Reynolds, this statement, Brad Reynolds sounded a bit like Moses come down from the mount with the true commandment. But Brad Reynolds, a decent and honorable man, is not Moses. And Reynolds, Meese, Saul, and Scalia no more have the true commandment than Brennan, Tribe, Dworkin, and Ackerman. The real truth is that within the bounds of reason, and I believe there are bounds of reason, Miranda versus Arizona is no more definitively wrong then Bowers versus Hardwick is definitively right. These decisions are based on very different theories of constitutional interpretation. But the theories are both held by persons of intellect, of thoughtfulness, of commitment to the Constitution, and of goodwill. We must never stop debating these questions, but we must not lose our humility in the process. If we do, and if we insist definitively on the ultimate rightness of our views, 
then we surely pose the greatest threat to our constitutional order. Thank you. Dean Stone, thank you so very much. Uh, you really do know how to shake up a guy. Brad Reynolds is not Moses? <laughs> it's my privilege now to give you Judge Robert Bork. Judge Bork. I come before you with a tablet. <laughs> I'm sorry I was late and held you up, but the prospect of the intellectual excitement I knew I would find this morning was so intense that I ran into another car. My car, my car is now sitting up on MacArthur Boulevard leak, with a radiator leaking, and the Federalist Society will hear from my insurance company. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I, I very much enjoyed the two previous speakers. Uh, Bruce Ackerman stressed the illegality of the process by which the Constitution was proposed, apparently to lay a foundation for his view of how judges should decide cases. <laughs> <coughs> but I wouldn't worry Bruce about that necktie. The Federalist Society chose Madison because he changed his mind so often that all of us can agree with him. <laughs> then Dean Stone, I thought, engaged in a uh, bit of imperialism, which I had to object to. He has seized the Federalist Society uh, as Chicago's own. Apparently, no matter what the topic, economics or law, there always turns out to be a Chicago school, <laughs> which takes over things. <laughs> the fact is, the Federalist Society was jointly founded at Yale and Chicago, and since I'm connected with both institutions, I'm very happy about that. Um, now, at the risk of arousing in you sensations of dismay, or even from what provoking uh, overt hostility, I want to beat a horse that is now, if not dead, at least comatose. Uh, and that is an adequate warning, I think, is that I'm going to raise the originalist, non-originalist issue once more. Uh, if there's anybody in this room who hasn't published on the subject, <laughs> I'm sure you will shortly. <clears throat> but it remains true that the answers one gives to the questions before us, those posed by the uh, Deputy Attorney General, uh, will diverge according to which of those two positions one takes. And indeed, uh, the question of overruling prior precedent will uh, depend upon how one comes down on which side of that issue. Now let me, uh, as it may be known, I'm an originalist, and let me explain what I think that means. Dean John Hardeely described the basic premise of originalism or intentionalism as well as anyone. He said, what distinguishes originalism from its opposite is its insistence that the work of the political branches is to be invalidated only in accord with an inference whose starting point, whose underlying premise, 
is fairly discoverable in the Constitution, that the complete inference will not be found there because the situation is not likely to have been foreseen is generally common ground. In short, <clears throat> all an originalist judge needs, all he requires is that the text and the structure and the history of the Constitution provide him not with a conclusion, but with a premise. That premise states a core value or a core principle that the framers intended to protect. The judge must then supply the minor premise, uh, considering today's circumstances, in order to protect the constitutional power or the constitutional freedom in circumstances the framers could not have foreseen. That's not a new function. Courts perform it all of the time when they apply a statute, a contract, a will, or indeed a Supreme Court opinion to a situation the framers of those documents did not foresee. Uh, as technological matters change, as uh, Dean Stone mentioned, necessarily those values will come to apply in different ways to new circumstances in society. Does this version of originalism mean that judges will invariably decide cases the way the framers would have if they were here today? Of course it doesn't. We can never know that. But many cases will be decided that way, and at the very least, judges will confine themselves to the principles the framers put into the Constitution. Entire ranges of issues will be placed off limits to judges, thus preserving democracy in those areas where the framers intended democratic government. And I think that is better than any non-intentionalist or non-originalist theory can do. Most constitutional doctrine <laughs> is merely the judge-made superstructure that implements the framers' basic values. This means, I think, that the role of precedent in constitutional law is less important than it is in a proper common law or statutory model. And one difference is the availability of a legislature with respect to the common law and with respect to statutes. A court in one of those areas, once it sets out on a particular path, has strong incentives to stay on that path for the sake of predictability because it always knows that the legislature can change the rule. He has a safety net. In a constitutional case, the judge has no safety net. The only legislature of concern has been long since dissolved by death. So if a constitutional judge comes to a firm conviction that the courts have misunderstood the intentions of the founders, the basic principle uh, they enacted, he is freer than when acting in his capacity as an interpreter of the common law or of a statute to overturn the precedent. <laughs> now, uh, Dean Stone talked about precedent as a means of controlling the judge. Actually, I don't think precedent, given the resources of legal reasoning and rhetoric, can control a judge who is both intellectually agile and dishonest. Uh, <clears throat> nor can a philosophy of originalism. There is no way to control a judge of that sort. Uh, but certainly I think a judge who comes to a conclusion that his predecessors have been wrong on the question of the framers' intentions has to explain why he has a better view. 
And it is possible to have a better view, and it can be explained, particularly as historical understanding increases. Certainly, at the least, I would think an originalist judge <laughs> would have no problem whatever in overruling a non-originalist precedent, because that precedent, by the very, very basis of his judicial philosophy, has no legitimacy. It comes from nothing that the framers intended. Uh, and in that sense, which of these two camps one joins makes all the difference. I don't mean to say, of course, that a constitutional judge is absolutely free. If tomorrow Raoul Berger found a long-lost document <coughs> that said that at every ratifying convention had passed a resolution saying that the Commerce Clause <coughs> was not to give Congress power to regulate any activity, such as manufacturing or farming that took place within a single state, or to enact any regulation whose objective was not wholly commercial. If Mr. Berger found that document, I think no, no court would try to turn the law back to correspond with that. It is simply too late now. Too much of our statutory law, our administrative agencies, our corporations, our unions, our private institutions, and private settled expectations are built upon a broader view of the commerce power. To pull back now would be, in effect, to reform, to uproot our entire government and society. The nation has become something on one view of the Commerce Clause that judges simply cannot undo. That is not true, however, of every precedent. It is true of some. Well, <coughs> I will pause here. I had an example, but it will run me over time, of, uh, and I'd like to discuss it perhaps in the discussion period, of why it was proper for courts, for the Supreme Court, to overrule Plessy against Ferguson, even on the hypothesis that separate but equal was the framer's intention. And it was proper for them, nevertheless, to arrive at Brown against Board of Education. But why I think it would be improper uh, for a court today to find, as is much suggested, that the death penalty is itself unconstitutional. Perhaps we can talk about that later. Judge Bork, thank you so much. And now for our anchor man, Mike Horowitz. It's a very easy task to be the anchor man following uh, Judge Bork and uh, Bruce Ackerman. It reminds me of uh, when I went to law school, there was this wonderful cheer. It began, for God. Next came, for country. Lord knows what would come next, and it would be for Yale, would be the third of, uh, uh, of, uh, of the cheers. Uh, I do want to talk about uh, much the same subject that Dean Stone did, and in some respects, for very different reasons, to come to uh, many of the same conclusions he did. And in the process, try to talk about uh, what Judge Bork, uh, and integrate in some measure uh, the points that Judge Bork has just made. The issue that I think the interesting one is uh, how to deal with, how to overrule, how to change, how to modify the existing body of constitutional doctrine. As uh, both uh, Attorney General Meese, Tom Sowell said yesterday, this is a question that's only superficially anomalous for conservatives. 
It is in some measure anomalous to be sure for us to be talking about overruling precedent, modifying precedent, and looking at the extent to which uh, uh, it can and should be done. Because we as conservatives are, of course, less utopian in our expectations of uh, what can be produced. We look more for stability. We look more uh, with greater horror on change for its own sake and, uh, and particularly unknown risks as against uh, uh, the certain risks. And I think uh, uh, we know uh, that uh, to live in a world is to live uh, in a place uh, with folly and error and that's the lot of man and we live with it in the constitutional area as in many others. I think that is the essence in some respects of uh, conservatism. And yet, and yet, change is clearly in order. Uh, I think for three very particular reasons in the constitutional area. First, uh, and change must be in order, I think, uh, at the hands of the courts. Here I agree entirely with uh, Professor Dean Stone. The amendment process is far too cumbersome a process. If you look at the 11th and the 26th amendments, uh, those changes took place only because the clear prerogatives as they sought of the states as institutions operating as states were implicated and therefore uh, overruling of constitutional doctrine was required. We had to fight a civil war in order to overrule in, uh, uh, through the amendment process uh, the Dred Scott decision. Uh, uh, maybe an overruling of Dred Scott could have spared us and brought us uh, who knows what result, but surely could have spared us the anguish of the Civil War. Uh, the constitutional amendment process requires almost complete consensus, and uh, um, it is therefore not the means, I think, of overruling court decisions. Courts have to undo what courts have wrongly done, the question is how and when. I think the two more principal issues that bring us here, the two reasons why we as conservatives need to look at the issue of change and how to foster it and to what extent it's possible and credible in constitutional doctrine, come first from uh, the very nature of the change that has taken place over the last 30 years. Hayek has been frequently quoted at this conference. I have my own favorite. He said, it is often said that pr the professional bias of the lawyer is conservative. The situation is entirely different, however, when a general philosophy of the law, which is not in accord with the greater part of the existing law, has recently gained ascendancy. The same lawyers will, through the same habits and techniques, and generally as unwittingly, become a revolutionary force, as effective in transforming the law down to every detail as they were before in preserving it. The same forces which in the first condition make for lack of movement will in, the, will in the second tend to accelerate change until it has transformed the whole body of law much beyond the point that anyone foresaw or designed. This is much, I think, uh, whether in the common law, as Richard Willard spoke yesterday, or in constitutional law. We've had 30 years of rather profound change uh, and uh, the lawyer's penchant for logic rather than history uh, compels us to look at the change that's been affected uh, and to reverse some of those changes uh, in the interest of the principles and outcomes that uh, uh, we think are necessary for a stable order.
The second reason is, I think, uh, uh, the fault in no small part of the Attorney General and others. He has generated a debate, and the debate has fleshed out, I think, the reality that we do not have in some fairly profound way shared premises about how constitutional decisions are to be made. Uh, is law a, uh, a, uh, a, uh, uh, a process, uh, is, is, it a, is it a process of uh, instruction, as Tom Sowell raised, or is it a process of moral mandates? Uh, is law rooted in the limitation of the lawgivers, or is, the, or is it the instrument by which the lawgivers, the courts, by their own lights, uh, liberate and ennoble us. Uh, we who see the uh, answer more clearly in the former than the latter uh, are not in the same position of uh, someone finding, perhaps a less destabilizing, but a new revision of Madison's texts. It's not as if decisions which have been rendered in the last 30 years share the premises that we have on how decisions by and large should be rendered. And therefore, I think we need to take a hard body, a hard look at the existing body of the law sympathetically, and here I agree with Jeff Stone, for prudential as well as principled reasons, uh, principled to be sure, um, that as we effect change, particularly as we fantasize about one or two more appointments to the Supreme Court during the Reagan term, we ought to be very careful in our expectations and much more limited in our sense of what it is in the administration over the uh, ussery decision of the Supreme Court and were concerned when that decision was overruled. But we had little cause to complain, surely on grounds of constitutional stability. A 5-4 decision had overturned a 6-2 uh, decision rendered not very far, uh, not, not long before the 5-4 determination. And when one judge changed his mind and we lost on a 5-4 to four basis, uh, there wasn't much basis for us to talk about uh, the sanctity of precedent or the body of constitutional law. Uh, Brown versus Board of Education by and large stuck because the ground had been laid intellectually in terms of the development of the law. There was Sweat versus Painter. There was the Oklahoma Board of Regents case. When that decision came, it was expected and the decision stuck as I think the principal constitutional doctrines we have in mind to be in force ought equally to do. Uh, the history of the legal tender cases after the Civil War, when decisions were seen as having been made and as a function of personnel rather than principle, we can't allow us, our victories, which are certain in my judgment in the long run, to be undermined by the sense that they derive from short-term personnel changes rather than from principle. And why? Here are some political realities that I think need to be confronted by all of us. First, the saddest of them all. The Reagan Revolution, in which so many of us tried to, to participate, has not had the effect and is not the political revolution that the New Deal Revolution of FDR was. You don't have to look beyond the 1986 elections to understand that. We have gained a respectability for our ideas. They are clearly not only competitive, but in my judgment, ascendant. They are not, however, the prevailing ideas. And as such, winning victories uh, whenever we can get them and whenever that fifth judge can be found, 
uh, are not likely to be lasting victories. They will, as I think, and to take uh, Jeff Stone's principles in, a, in, a, in an immediate context, further politicize the judicial selection process. We know how political, we know how unfair it is, but it ought to be reminded, we ought to understand uh, that the president has appointed 40% of the federal judiciary. If there were no need for the fig leaf, however brutal and unfair it may be in the political process of personal charges to be made as mere covers for dislike of the uh, judicial philosophies of judges, uh, it would be far easier to defeat uh, the nominees of the president on straight party line votes. And if we are seen, even if unfairly, as, uh, as relying on personnel to achieve victories whenever we've got the votes, we will politicize further the uh, judicial selection process. There is also, if you're talking of the Supreme Court, issues of lower court insubordination. Lawyers are very creative people and judges often more creative uh, than most lawyers. There are lots of interstices in every decision, no matter how clear. A Supreme Court sharing the views of, uh, of the appointees of the president and those few I hope he will shortly be in a position to make must exercise leadership uh, with courts who whatever their predilection lower courts are disposed if that measure of leadership intellectual moral leadership is there uh, to follow the Supreme Court it's very important that the lower courts see it in those terms and finally we ought to remember that we are in office that Judge Bork is on the bench and Justice Scalia is there and Chief Justice Rehnquist is our Chief Justice and the President is the President in no small measure by reason of the overreach of the courts going in directions and policy directions and principle directions that we found abhorrent but for the abortion decision uh, uh, unprincipled as that decision may well have been it's not at all clear that Ronald Reagan would have been elected as president. And if we win our policy victories seemingly on the cheap through that fifth vote, we can equally galvanize a political opposition and uh, that the Supreme Court, as we know, follows election, election or whatever it is, returns and, and uh, we ought to be careful and modest about that. Now that's not to say that we ought to be uh, sappy about the process. It is unfair for us to be, as it often seems, victims of, of what appears to me often a one-way ratchet. We speak of principle, and whether Justice Brennan thinks in those terms, as indeed he does, he thinks of himself as a clearly principled man, the thrust of my remarks is that there's something troublesome, one sees it in Justice Brennan, uh, uh, when a justice cites his authority for his current dissent, his previous dissent, and feels himself uh, morally uh, rightful in so doing. That one-way ratchet problem is a problem, uh, but nonetheless, we are dealing as Justice Bo as Judge Justice, again, as uh, with Tom Sowell, I get ahead of uh, the game, uh, uh, um, uh, indicated, we are dealing not just in the story of, uh, of Raoul Berger finding the, uh, the minutes of the Constitutional Convention, in a more immediate sense. The same point he made is that we're dealing with 30 years of accumulated precedent 
30 years of processes, of expectations, of investments in the status quo, and one or two uh, increments to the Supreme Court uh, won't reverse it. Is it unfair that we're held to a somewhat higher standard, that we ought to be more modest in our pursuit of what we believe to be right? I think not entirely so, and also because we are seeking to become the ascendant moral, political, doctrinal ideology in the country and have every reason to become so, but we are not at that point yet. And the American people look in those competing for that kind of leadership, either a political leadership or a leadership of ideas, for some kind of good faith, self-restraint, fairness, openness. We need to show it, and if we think it unfair that we have to be uh, holier than thou, we have to accept the fact that we live in a world whose ideas and values have been largely shaped over a 30-year period that we want in some fairly fundamental ways to change. Now, let me make two other points. First, there is a difference between what we do as judges and what we do as advocates. And indeed, there is a difference between uh, what we do depending on what sort of advocacy we practice. Uh, Judge Bork as Solicitor General was very different, I think, is Judge Bork uh, sitting on the D.C. Circuit. He could be, we are lawyers, we are advocates, and when he was the advocate, he was exceedingly effective in moving the court to change its doctrines uh, in uh, the search and seizure area, in the double jeopardy area, in money, many other areas. Uh, Charles Freed, the current solicitor, while uh, uh, at times uh, quite heroically looking for the sort of flat-out uh, reversals that, uh, uh, that Dean Stone uh, would be concerned to see the courts uh, undertaking, uh, has nonetheless, in moving away from uh, looking for high batting averages in the Solicitor General's office, courageously moved the office in what I think in the main are proper directions. The Attorney General, in his advocacy, has also uh, made a clear difference in opening the debate. Uh, Richard Epstein, in, the st in what he writes, is sensitizing the world to uh, the importance of property rights as profound rights. But that, as I've indicated, is very different from our looking for the fifth ver vote tomorrow to overrule Lochner. If we get it, it won't be right, and if we get it, it won't stick, is my point. Now, what are principles, my last point, are there principles? Is there a set of priorities for overruling, for changing, for shaping the existing body of doctrine? Because change is in order. I think there are. Let me try, uh, in addition to the obvious one of uh, Dean Stone's, that is where the factual premise of a decision no longer exists, I think there is a hierarchy. Uh, uh, um, here's my effort at it. I think we all ought to be searching for it and not simply looking at the, the random coming of cases uh, uh, and looking for, uh, for majorities to overrule error when we find it. The first uh, derives from what Larry Tribe said yesterday, what he finds to be the bias in favor of state autonomy in the Constitution. I share that view. I view as entirely healthy uh, the notion of this state constitutional federalism, where as the Supreme Court looks less and less, as I hope it will, and increasingly so, 
for nationalized solutions to social and political problems, both because I don't think there's authority in the Constitution for many of those uh, prior precedents, and because I don't think that they are necessary uh, today or workable. Um, uh, we find state courts establishing regimes that go far beyond uh, what uh, the uh, what past Supreme Courts of the past 30 years have done. I view that as altogether healthy, but I also view that as a license, at least for the court presumptively uh, to be and for us to be more prepared for change. Because whatever outcomes we no longer mandate from the Supreme Court are nonetheless possible of achievement through state Supreme Courts and through, uh, through state legislatures. In that sense, there's a key difference between doctrine, which we find troubling, but nonetheless doctrine on the one hand which precludes actions by the state courts and legislatures and those which authorize it even though we think that the Constitution may not do so in our view of the Constitution. We ought to be more presumptively prepared to fight for change in the first area uh, and perhaps less so in the second area. None of these principles are self-enforcing in any particular case, but they do, it seems to me, set up some kind of guidelines, some sort of order of priorities. We no longer can say in this country, uh, but as, as we did to justify nationalizing problems, but what about Mississippi? as if the role of the Congress and particularly the United States Supreme Court was to protect Mississippi and in the process create nationalized solutions. And Mississippi, the, whatever it was in the Civil War, its lingering effects in terms of the political systems of the South, I think are in the process of going and are by and large gone. More elected black officials in Mississippi than any other state of the Union. And for that reason, I think, the bias against nationalizing problems, uh, the permitting individual state regimes uh, to take place, uh, um, uh, ought give us some presumptive basis for overruling existing doctrine. And I think in the process, we could even be generous and give credit to the court of the last 20 and 30 years and tell them that the reason why we're at the point where doctrine can now be overruled is because you have forced, in, in a sense, upon the states and upon all of the states uh, more open elections, uh, as indeed we have. Uh, states are now prepared through all of the forces, all of the lobbying interests, all of the minority interests and so forth can enter into the mix give credit for that change to courts uh, which impose that on the states, but the time may now come in this area particularly to take hard, harder looks at existing bodies of doctrine. The second area that I think important is what Dean Ely talks about. Uh, that is when the democratic process is implicated. Uh, I think in those cases where the, we believe in a process, in a democratic process at the local level, the courts do have the ultimate role, I think, and the only ones who can make sure that the process works. I was troubled at uh, the, uh, at the uh, rather uh, uncharacteristic uh, refusal of uh, the Reagan administration and of the Justice Department to even file a brief in the Indiana reapportionment case. I think the gerrymandering uh, that takes place makes 
mockeries of many elections and, uh, and uh, uh, does not allow the democratic process to operate. There may be other areas as well, the Buckley v. Vallejo areas, perhaps some of the overreach of the voting rights cases, where uh, the process, the political process itself, predetermines the outcome of the electoral process. And there, I think, courts are also more presumptively licensed to look at past precedents and overrule and modify those precedents. Finally, I think there is an area of institutional guardianship of the courts themselves, that the courts have a right and a responsibility to look at. Here is where I agree entirely with Professor Posner. What we've got now is a dilution of the product of justice by the overjudicialization of case after case and problem after problem. And if doctrines of the court, if existing bodies of constitutional doctrine really require that more and more people be subjected to more and more court proceedings, I think the courts have a role to make sure that uh, justice uh, is, uh, is not uh, rationed out. And cases like the exclusionary rule, I think, are cases which uh, we can take a harder look at and uh, where the modification of existing constitutional doctrine uh, is uh, more presumptively appropriate. Uh, I think uh, the struggle, my own uh, nurturing faith is that uh, uh, from the Old Testament, uh, I guess this is my bias and I will truly conclude with this, that uh, truth is less for me a process of revelation and more a process of trial and error, living with ambiguity, living with error. I think uh, the struggle is more important often than the outcome. I think meetings of this kind will establish the permanence of the sort of revolution that we all have in mind than that fifth vote on the Supreme Court. I think your youth, your enthusiasm, uh, this, kind of, uh, this kind of process may in the end be more important to affecting the revolution uh, than that uh, fifth or sixth vote and we ought to be modest in our expectations and modest in our presumptions in that regard. Thank you very much. I'm sorry for going on too long. Thank you very much, Mike. Now, we've covered a lot of ground, and I know that many of you are anxious to get into the fray. As the first order of business, however, I'm going to offer our panelists an opportunity, if they wish to uh, take advantage of it, to comment on things that the others may have said. I'm a little... This work? Uh, I'm a little uh, surprised, actually, um, by the characterization of the last 30 years. Uh, um, I was a uh, law clerk for, to uh, uh, Justice Harlan, and uh, we uh, spent a lot of time uh, uh, laughing uh, at uh, these silly uh, uh, originalists, um, that is, Hugo Black. Uh, the uh, most important judge of the last 30 years, intellectually speaking, is Hugo Black. Frankfurter and Harlan, the great conservatives of this period, are anti-originalists. So the idea that this body, Brennan, admirable fellow that he is, is hardly the intellectual leader of this court. Um, whole areas of law are shaped by, in my view, the silly idea uh, of incorporation. Uh, but that is a founding father notion uh, 
um, in spades. Uh, so when we are um, talking about the, uh, the uh, uh, tradition uh, that we're thinking about changing, as every generation must, uh, the, um, the notion that um, these people of uh, yesterday, uh, uh, and especially the most important intellectual leaders of the, uh, were playing some crazy game um, uh, of making it up, seems to me quite wrong. Um, the critical question is how to interpret the Constitution. Uh, and that's a question which uh, uh, I am very much prepared to uh, talk uh, and uh, worry about. Uh, and I, uh, uh, however, uh, uh, think that we make it too easy for ourselves uh, to think that, uh, aha, we've just discovered the idea of that the founders had intentions and uh, that we really should pay attention to them. Uh, it's rather Hugo Black who is uh, uh, the intellectual uh, grandfather of uh, Bob Bork, uh, not Justice Harlan. Thank you. Anyone else on the panel? No, just so aghast, I will sit here in silence <laughs> <laughs> for the moment. Does anyone have some smelling salts? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? If not, let's open the, uh, open the questioning from the floor. Rocky. <coughs> uh, listening to uh, Dean Stone, I was a little bit reminded of the Bill Cosby routine in which the uh, colonial forces and the British flipped a coin. And uh, the British uh, lost the toss. It had to be the people who marched in a straight line and opened fields in red coats. And uh, the, uh, the colonials got to shoot from behind bushes. Uh, there's got to be some other principle that allows one to be principled. And the idea that after 30 years in which, with the exception of Hugo Black, perhaps, and a couple of others, uh, judges were playing the whole game in a way with, it, with which it is possible to disagree on principle, uh, that you've, you've, you've got to go along because uh, that's all gone by the boards. I think it can be demonstrated algebraically that if you've got two groups of judges and one group uh, cares very deeply about some idea of what law is outside precedent, but also cares even more about precedent. That is, will defer to precedent even when the precedent contravenes that idea of what law is. And there's another group uh, that doesn't care about that idea and also doesn't care very much about precedent. The only cases that get precedental effect are the ones that didn't care about what that idea of law is. Uh, can't the principle be this, that where the humility comes in is that precedent, particularly bodies of precedent, particularly precedents that in which people seem to have in some respect ac acquiesced, uh, cause you to take a hard look at what your ideas may have been. That the whole function of the judicial role is to think about things in a way 
uh, that the politician doesn't have a chance to. Uh, and that you ought to think more the more uh, other people who are bright and who were there too seem to have disagreed with you. That if on balance you would have decided that case differently at the time and you think that the judge was asking a profoundly wrong question, uh, if you decide that rather than just that reasonable people can differ and I differ, then it's all right to, to overrule the case after you've thought about it. Well, I, I, two things I guess I, I'd respond to. <laughs> One is that I was not meaning to suggest, unlike Mike, that um, conservatives should be held to a different standard with respect to commitment to precedent than others. Um, I don't believe that. And I, that isn't to say that I think everything that, that those with whom I agree on other issues um, is consistent with that. But I think that it's an aspiration that regardless of one's legal or political ideology, one should hold. Second point is um, I don't mean to suggest that overruling, even for reasons other than the two that I identify as, I think, fairly, um, to me, fairly easily acceptable, is per se wrong. I think that, however, one has to understand that it is very problematic, because once one gets into the business of overruling essentially because I think the prior case was wrong, that that becomes an extremely unstable situation, especially with shifts over time in the court. It just becomes another political entity. So a principle along the lines of the one you identify, I think, is one one has to think about. It's not that one can never overrule because something was wrong. It's that one has to be very careful about defining what one means by wrong and defining it in a way that there is a kind of consensus, that it's not the fifth vote, but that there is a deeply principled way of saying that it's wrong and that um, we are not radically ripping out the fabric of our constitutional jurisprudence. So that I think what, where you're headed is the right direction. The question is how one articulates it and how one adds, adds some meat to those bones. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm Frank Foreman, an economist at the U.S. Department of Education. I have a public choice question, which is about Article Three, Section 2, that gives Congress the power to regulate the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Why hasn't, why hasn't Congress been invoking this? Maybe the democracy is working very well. The people are, in, in fact, getting the outrages that we think that they shouldn't be getting. And so we're, we're, we've been here upbraiding uh, judges for not getting right with the founding fathers, but shouldn't we direct our attention at congressmen? So I'd like to ask the panelists to, to uh, make some comments upon this section of the Constitution, because I think it's in the back of all of our minds. Anyway. Well, uh, I'm very much opposed to uh, manipulating the uh, jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. Uh, um, we, of course, have one uh, example of that at the, uh, uh, at the great crisis of Reconstruction. Uh, uh, Congress did indeed uh, deprive the Supreme Court uh, uh, of the right to declare its uh, uh, very problematically legal actions uh, unconstitutional. Uh, but uh, removing jurisdiction, uh, first of all, uh, doesn't end the constitutional question. It rather uh, assures a radically decentralized uh, uh, answer to it. That is, all 50 state uh, uh, Supreme Courts uh, proceed uh, uh, in the same uh, spirit. Uh, second, uh, the, uh, um, uh, I think that we depend uh, tremendously on, uh, on uh, uh, the 
ongoing exchange between uh, the court and Congress and, and the President in the, in, in the United States for defining what our constitutional future is. I would much prefer uh, to uh, uh, have the Supreme Court uh, uh, rethink in the way that was described before uh, one or another set of its controversial decisions than simply destroying the process for collective reconsideration uh, over time. But the issue isn't what Professor Ackerman wants, but why haven't the voters been getting their, con getting their congressmen to override it? Maybe because uh, the voters uh, uh, think that I'm, what I just said isn't so idiosyncratic. Anyone else on the panel? <coughs> the second microphone, sir. Yes, sir. <clears throat> My name is Gary Amos. I have uh, two concerns. One uh, that would like some response. One deals with uh, one of uh, Dr. Ackerman's themes and the other one, Dean Designate Stone. I um, wonder, Professor Ackerman, if, if your reading of history is correct, does that not mean then that the states' rights secessionists were correct in their reading of the Constitution? That was, that's the first half of the question. Well, I think that uh, that's a very profound question. Uh, the uh, um, uh, the, uh, we, uh, uh, the, the, the study of constitutional law is, uh, 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 t as it's practiced in the nation's law schools uh, today, is uh, deeply defective. It's the uh, victor's uh, account of uh, uh, scene from today. Uh, I believe that uh, John C. Calhoun and, uh, and uh, Marshall were both deviant. Uh, Rep, uh, and proponents of one a very strongly nationalist view, uh, the other of a very strongly um, uh, uh, secessionist, uh, st very strongly anti-nationalist view, and that in fact the uh, it would be very valuable. Uh, in fact, I'm writing a book about this uh, to reconstruct to reconstruct uh, our constitutional discourse and understand that there was integrity to the exchange. Uh, mm -hmm. between Calhoun and, and Marshall, and that uh, the uh, Confederates were not at all crazy when they thought that they were continuing the tradition of 1787, just as much as Abraham Lincoln was. No, that, uh, I didn't so, intend for applause. The civil, so the Civil War that, did resolve something. That leads into the point with uh, Dean Designate Stone. See, now I was taught uh, the view, that you, the uh, history, and after going back and studying myself, I came to a completely opposite conclusion. Would you speak right into the microphone? Okay, right into the loud microphone. So Here's the question. Back Here's the question. Thank you. Uh, I would hate to think that if I got a 30-year lease uh, purchase agreement, that if with evolutionary changing of terminology, that at the end of 30 years I find out that what I really had was a rental agreement. Uh, I would. I'm, I'm troubled because I'm convinced that the secessionists did not read the Constitution the, the same way, and. I'm troubled that they are the early precursors of the evolutionists. That the I'm from Virginia, and my grandparents were secessionists, but I'm troubled that what we have with uh, saying that the document does not have a determinable, uh, discernible meaning, it puts us in the same position as the states' rights secessionists. Dean Designate, could you respond to that? Well, I think that it does not have a definitive meaning. That is not to say that there are not reasonable limits on what's a plausible interpretation. If that puts us in the same place with the secessionists, then I guess it does. I don't know how else to answer it. Uh, thank you. Now, uh, we are uh, uh, at the end of our time, but I'm going to ask uh, our local stations to bear with us 
as we go into overtime here for a few minutes. Sir. Uh, my name is Howard Haas, and my question is addressed to Judge Bork. This document is supposed to be a document of enumerated powers, uh, and yet Congress reads anything it wants, as you know, into the Commerce Clause. You said, well, gee whiz, they've done it for over 100 years. It would cost too much societal upheaval to change that. Uh, yet Plessy v. Ferguson was also with us for a long time in the law, and many people thought it was natural, and it sure as hell caused us a lot of social upheaval since 1954 in Brown v. Board of Education to free black people of discrimination. Now, when do we get around to freeing the economy? Of, of, of government, overly government regulation, and when do we say that the Commerce Clause cannot just mean everything and mean nothing at the same time? The, uh, the Commerce Clause and the tax power and the other limits on the other guarantees of federalism largely collapsed uh, in the 30s, and largely collapsed, I guess, because there was no national will to sustain those members of the court who wanted to protect federalism. Uh, no court can stand for long, forever, against a driving national political power. That court collapsed and the, uh, the replacing judges came in. Uh, I doubt uh, that anybody has a, uh, I doubt any court could make returning to the law before 1936 stick anymore. And it would mean there go the securities laws, there go the civil rights laws, there go the uh, labor management laws, and so forth and so forth. I, I wouldn't care to contemplate. No. If you want to change those laws, there's a way to change them other than to have five judges try to uh, rip them up when the, when the public doesn't want them ripped up. The second microphone, sir. My name is John Moran. I'm from Staten Island, New York. And after this, we're going to take only one more question, then we're going to run out of time. Go ahead, okay. sir. Thank you. My question is, if we leave it to the courts to bring about change in the Constitution, because as Mr. Horowitz had suggested, the amendment process has become too cumbersome, then do we not run the, then do we not run the risk that the political ideology of the administration who appointed the judges will dictate what changes are made? I would like to do that. Well, I think uh, what I've tried to say is that uh, it depends on the quality, the integrity, the, uh, the leadership capacities, the art of the judges who are appointed. Uh, my, the thrust of my remarks is that, yes, we do have an amendment process that is so cumbersome that it, that, uh, that, uh, it cannot uh, overrule the bodies of doctrine easily uh, for which there is any substantial base of support in the country. Uh, but that what we really need to avoid, and particularly this group needs to avoid, is the, the false illusion that uh, excessive economic regulation, for example, against which Lord knows uh, I tried my best, uh, not too successfully to be sure, to battle over five years in the political arena, can be overturned if uh, Richard Epstein and two or three others in the next five years can get on the court. I don't necessarily even agree with Judge Bork uh, that it's inconceivable uh, that the court could ever again uh, overturn New Deal doctrine. I think as I listened to the Attorney General's speech last night, I saw the effect, the influence 
of, uh, of uh, Professor Epstein and, and, and the kind of hard thinking going on when he talked about uh, uh, the extent to which the court has uh, perhaps all too, has all too blithely ignored uh, economic uh, 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 rights uh, 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 and imperatives. But this is a very evolutionary process and it's a, it's a part of battle for ideas and not a battle for votes in the first instance. And my only point was that if any administration is perceived as simply battling for votes, uh, it will not succeed. Surely this administration, uh, where we have a divided polity politically, cannot succeed if it makes that effort. Thank you. Thank Last you. question, sir. Okay, my name is Mark Peters. I'm from Southern California. And I want to commend uh, Professor Stone there for finally mentioning Thomas Jefferson, a man I think who is, never gets enough credit and I think that Judge Bork would be wise to remember some of Jefferson's uh, comments. Um, I think that Judge Bork uh, underestimates the American people's capacity to adapt to change quickly. And when you were worried about uh, society being turned topsy-turvy, if we found something about the Commerce Clause saying it should be limited to... Do you recall what Thomas Jefferson said about the court and its powers? About the court? <laughs> well. <laughs> well, he also said something about revolution every 20 years, too. Um, now, uh, I want to specifically address uh, one thing other, I'd like to think of the court as being teleological, is that uh, a, like a torpedo which changes um, its course, you know, to get to the target, I would think that the Constitution and the American people would be teleological and change course towards truth, and even that, if, if that involves reversing themselves and going back and clearing up the mistake, I think we should have the courage to do that. I think they have the courage, but I think the court sometimes doesn't have that. Uh, on the one thing Mr. Horowitz and, and Professor Stone mentioned, my question is about if the court all of a sudden recognizes because of the technological changes um, that have come about that the unborn child is indeed a person, okay, what do we do? What do they do? Do they have the courage to say, okay, that, that creature is a person? Okay, so because for the last 10 years we've depended on, you know, this trimester nonsense and, and what's a person, what's not a person. Uh, do we now make the, have the courage to say, okay, this is a person, we're going to clear everything up, no more abortions. Will they have the courage to do that or will they have to kind of do what the NAACP did and chip away, you know, with the, uh, the anti-discrimination things they had, their litigation campaign? Do you think they'll be able to do that? That's my question. First of all, I, don't, I find it very hard to, to put in the, the notion of technological change and the legal question of whether an unborn child is a person for the legal purpose. I mean, that, I don't think it's a technological Well, question. let's say for whatever reason but, they but find let, out. Let me answer the question somewhat differently. It, it, see, there, there is a very fine and subtle dance between the political system and the process of constitutional interpretation. The court is not an institution that is completely separate from its society. To the contrary, it is very much responsive to what is happening in society, both through the appointment process and through a sense that the justice has owned its feelings about what is legitimate and what is illegitimate. Um, and, and I think that as society changes and social attitudes change, those, those changes very much affect the directions in which the justices and the court as a whole think about constitutional law and that it's not so much the technological change about the issue of abortion as simply societal changes about issues over time that will, the justices are people of their own times and they tend to think the way their times think and that more than anything I think directs in the long term the, the, the approach and, and uh, vectors of constitutional law. Thank you all very much. As a representative, 
As a representative of the people in the audience, I want to express profoundly our thanks to our distinguished panel. And representing the panel, I should like to thank all of you for your coming and for your participation. Thank you so very much.